Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. The Abraplan's intended flow of influence is from our people out to the nations, not vice versa. Therein lies a host of problems. Therein lies the heart of the choice that is set before every king of Israel or Judah, or you. Will my people trust in and follow me so that my love and care is evident to all who are close enough to witness them? So that knowledge of who I am will spread as a result of their faithful choices? Or will my people look to the cultures that surround them to seek for solutions and meaning? Will my people positively impact the world around them, or will they be dragged into the shifting chaotic mire of the nation's ways? Will their identity spring from and rest in me or their habitat? Jehoshaphat is not perfect. Not one of these kings is. Every one of them, sooner or later, makes the selfish, feels-really-good-at-the-time choice that ignores the greater good upon which I have set the way. The kings that are on the way, though, step right back onto it after they've stumbled, and their sons watch them do it and learn from them. These kings are no different from you, neither are their children. Generation after generation, children become who their parents were because they have learned quite literally from infancy how to live what their parents deem a normal life. So you can guess pretty well how Jehoshaphat's son is going to turn out, and, dare we say it, Ahab's too. Towards the end of Jehoshaphat's rule down south, Ahab's eldest son Ahaziah, who has been ruling up north since Ahab bled to his incognito death, Ahaziah has an accident at the palace. We should note that the random seam imposed on kings occurs at this point. First Kings ends with Ahaziah's assumption of his father Ahab's throne in Israel. First Kings 22, 51-53 is, in fact, a pithy summary of Ahaziah's entire career. Second Kings kicks off by informing you that the new king is a klutz, and his entire career fits in Second Kings 1. Ahaziah takes a wrong step and falls from his second-story balcony to the ground level. A serious injury, to be sure, but not necessarily life-threatening. Now we'll see what Ahaziah is made of, right? It's when a crisis comes, whether in your life or that of kings, that a person's true substance shows. Has Ahaziah learned the lesson his father Ahab should have? Has he seen how much damage his father's trust in the neighbor's gods has done to Israel? Has he seen how much damage his father's trust in the neighbor's gods have done to Israel and figured out that I am the one to turn to? In a word? Nope. In fact, Ahaziah's first inclination upon finding that he has fallen and can't get up is pretty much the opposite of calling upon me for help. 
Ahazia instead wants to make contact with the closest Baal to find out if he's going to be okay. Really. His mom's hometown and the Baal shrine up there is too far to the north for a quick answer, so he sends messengers to the nearest temple of Baal, which happens to be to the southwest in the Philistine town of Ekron. If there is any silver lining to be seen in this sequence at all, it is that after our spectacular triumph over Baal on Mount Carmel through Elijah, Ahab's son is not considering reaching out to any Baal from within Israel's borders, because any altar or high place dedicated to Baal was destroyed in the showdown's wake. So there's a plus. Well, before Ahaziah's messengers can barely get started on their trek from Samaria down to Ekron, at around 40 miles away, it's still under half the distance to Sidon. Elijah, whom we have alerted of the situation, confronts them on the road with, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going all the way down to the Philistines in Ekron to consult with their Baal, the so-called Lord of the Flies? This is what the name of their deity, Baal-zebub, translates into, a name which gets applied to someone else in time, which we will address in a future episode. This fellow at Ekron serves as a reminder that whenever the term Baal is used as part of a formal name, again, it just means Lord, lowercase l, it does so as a shorthand nickname for the full name of the local Ga'ad, such as Baal Hadad, most often, or Baal Berith, Baal Mekart, Baal de Mort, and so on. Elijah continues, Let me save you the trip. Tell the king that Yahweh says, You're not leaving the bed you're in now. You made it, so you're going to lie and die in it. To their credit, the messengers take Elijah at his word. They turn right around and head straight for Ahaziah enthroned in his bed. Since they had just left, the king is more than surprised to see them back so soon. But when they deliver the message and describe the messenger, Elijah had not needed to identify himself, Ahab's son knows exactly who it is. Elijah has no budget for high or even low couture so he wears a signature inexpensive outfit of a camel-hair tunic cinched together by a big leather belt, as described in 2 Kings 1.8. Ahaziah sends a unit of fifty soldiers with their captain to demand that the prophet come speak with the king. These guys, unfortunately, were not at Mount Carmel that day and don't know with whom they're dealing. In Elijah's eyes... Because of the mission they've just interrupted, they, and more importantly, the king who sends them, are now adulterously allied with Baalzebub and daring to challenge us, making arrogant demands instead of approaching humbly. Thus, they meet with the same fate met by Baal's prophets on Carmel, or at least the fate of the sacrifice there that day. Elijah calls down fire from heaven that instantly consumes all fifty-one of them, as well as the next fifty-one sent by this slow-learning king, who is dense enough to repeat his actions a third time and yet expect a different outcome. Fortunately for us all, the third captain is not as dense as his king and approaches Elijah with great humility, 
The wise captain's life is spared as Elijah relents and accompanies him to the king's bedside. If Ahaziah expects Elijah's news to somehow change, that perhaps the prophet would feel bad for the king when seeing him face to face and thus alter the fatal prophecy, then Ahaziah doesn't know Elijah. Elijah's bedside manner is exactly the same as his mountainside manner had been. You've rejected Yahweh and turned to Baalzebub for help instead. So Yahweh is granting your desire that Baalzebub take care of you. All I can tell you is that the chances of your survival are equal to the chances of Baalzebub showing up to cure you. In other words, goodbye. As on Mount Carmel, Ekron's Baal is a no-show at Ahaziah's bedside, and thus Ahaziah is soon in his tomb. Since he has no sons, his brother Jehoram assumes the throne of Israel. And just as it is time for a new king in Israel, it is time for a new prophet as well. Not before Elijah makes a grand exit, of course. As colorful as his life is Elijah's departure. James Anthony Bailey could not have imagined a better one. We put on Elijah's heart that his life on earth is nearing its end and that we are going to invest his removal with meaning. No dying during his sleep for this one. First, we send him from his and Elisha's base in Gilgal over to Bethel, site of foundational early moments in the Abra plan. Elijah's stop there on his farewell tour is a reminder to him and to you of all that we are able to accomplish through someone who is in real relationship with us, not just going through the motions. I am talking about living, dwelling within the intimacy of first-name basis relationship with me. You see, Bethel is where Abram camps after leaving home and builds an altar to me, the first location at which he worships my name. That's back in Genesis 12:8. In 13:1 through 4, Abram calls on my name there again after his trip to Egypt. Bethel is also the place where Jacob and I get tight. You know, the fellow with the twelve sons and all. Well, as he begins his adult life, literally on his first night alone away from home, as he's on his way from his parents' home to his uncle's for his courtship sagas, Jacob just happens to stop for the night at Bethel, though its name is Luz at the moment. As he sleeps, he dreams of that ladder stretching from beside him on the earth up to heaven, with angels zipping up and down it. Then I stand beside him and introduce myself. I am Yahweh, the God of your grandpa Abraham and your dad Isaac. The land on which you now lie will be yours by my hand, and your offspring will be as countless as the grains of earth's dust. Through you and them I will bless all who live. That's back in Genesis 28, 10-22. I essentially transfer the Abra plan squarely onto Jacob's shoulders in that moment. He's the one that names the place House of God, Beth of El. And there he vows to follow me, setting the Abra plan fully on the course you're walking in today. 
So the town has a wagon load of resonance flowing from Abraham and Jacob and their moments with me at Bethel when Elijah arrives there. Echoing images of my faithful history-changing partnership with humans who called on my name and trusted in my promises to them. When Elijah arrives with Elisha, a group of local prophets, whom we have alerted to the current project, call Elisha aside and say, Hey, you know that Yahweh is taking your master away today, right? 2 Kings 2, 1-12 Well, of course he knows. Do they think I'd let them know and not Elisha? This three-part tour is as much for his benefit and yours as for Elijah. So when Elijah turns to Elisha and says, Yahweh's sending me on to Jericho next. Why don't you stay here? There is no way the Padawan prophet is going to do so. Jericho, of course, is another symbol of the power found in partnering with me. Bethel glows with the significance of individual walk on the way, while Jericho reminds of our use of all our people together in achieving miraculous ends. The walls came a-tumbling down neither by catapult nor sledgehammer, but by my might unleashed by and in my people's combined obedience. It's the classic lesson on the way of how trusting in and obeying me even when my instructions don't make sense. I mean seriously, just marching, shouting, and trumpets to bring down a city? Trusting and obeying me will bring the results I promise. My way seems counterintuitive in comparison to the messages the world around you is filling the airwaves with, sometimes even compared to plain common sense, which, you'll have to remember, has been shaped in no small part by your habitat, by the way. However, let me say it again. My ways will bring the results... I promise. There's so much to the final stop on Elijah's tour that we'll wait and discuss that all next time. In the meantime, keep walking along with me as we walk together on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.